Our daughter-in-law, Anna, um, emailed us earlier this week. In fact, it came in late Wednesday night, got in bed, looked at my mail, and and she was she's quite the plan ahead of her. And um, she had a baby six weeks ago, and she's uh, starting to set some dates uh, to get back to work. She does some singing with groups and things, and so she was beginning to fill out her um, babysitting schedule, like the end of September. Like I said, she's a plan ahead of her. But anyway, so, and I looked at the weekend, and it happened to be a weekend. She has, it's out here in Naperville, and she asked if she could come and if we could take care of the baby. And so, um, but it was, I looked on the calendar, it was a weekend that Megan's out of town, and I said, I can do it. And so, it's a deal. So I thought, I get to take care of Jonah. Here's a picture of Jonah. Yeah. Jonah's six weeks old. I, I get to take care of Jonah all by myself. I get to speak into his life and hang out with him. I get to shape his little character. I, I get to do everything I can that night to, to help him grow into a man of God who has a heart for God. Well, maybe not all that night, but as I look forward to building into his life. And I think maybe he could become just like his namesake in the Bible, Jonah. And then I thought, no, I hope not, actually. <laughs> the prophet Jonah does not actually display great and godly character. He runs away from God. He gets angry at God more than once. And in a way, he tries to control God. Among the minor prophets, this little book is unique. It's raised many questions over the centuries, even from Bible scholars who, those who hold a high view of the authority and the reliability of scriptures, there's still questions about, is this really a a true story that happened, or is it more like a parable, like the, the Good Samaritan, or is it more of an allegory that's trying to illustrate something different like what we read in Revelation? And did Jonah actually write this? We tend to assume, those of us who take a a straight-line view of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, we tend to assume that authorship of a book is named, that the name of the guy on the book must be the guy that wrote it. We tend to assume authorship with the name on the book. Um, But many feel about, um, with, with Noah, that perhaps a third person wrote it and because it's about him. Back to character. What's said about Noah or Jonah is not all that flattering. Jonah, sorry. It doesn't even turn out all right in the end like some of the stories in Scripture do. In fact, all these things about him are not very flattering. And so would he write these things about himself, we wonder? We have evidence that he was, in fact, a real prophet in the book of Second Kings, a historical book. Uh, Jonah is mentioned there in the words that he has spoken. I think the most satisfying explanation that I came up with this week was that it is a true story but it was written about Jonah by someone else and given the name Jonah because it's about him. Whether that's true or not, I'm not sure, but that's the premise I'm moving forward with. What's unique about this is that he's the only minor prophet who did not prophesy to Israel or Judah, at least not directly. The book is kind of directly, indirectly to Israel, but the prophecy he's called to give is not to to, to Judah or to Israel. In fact, he's the only prophet um, to, to speak to a, a heathen nation. And he's the only prophet who refuses to prophesy. (laughs) He's the only prophet who says, no, I won't do it. And actually, when you get into this little letter, there's very little actual prophecy. It's mostly narrative. It's mostly telling the story. In fact, the king of Nineveh in chapter 3 actually speaks more prophetic words than Jonah speaks. And though this little book is so different from the other minor prophets, it's probably the most familiar. It's the most familiar story. Because, well... I haven't even referenced the first thing that most people think of when they think of Jonah. They think of the 
whale, big fish, whatever, yeah. It's the first thing that comes to mind. And, and images like this, cute little happy kid stories about Jonah and the fish, you know? It's actually a pretty tragic story. But we have these little fun little stories about Jonah and the fish. And it's the fish, the big fish, that hangs so many people up on the historical reliability of this book. People just can't quite wrap themselves around whether that's really true. And, and some, but, but some commentators, I said, read, say, the arguments for the fish being real or not, those arguments tend to swallow up, <clears throat> tend to swallow up the bigger message that's here. There's a bigger message than whether there was really a fish that he spent time in or not. The bigger picture we move forward, we assume that God performs miracles, that it's a real story, and we get to the point of this unusual little book. And that's what we've been saying all summer about the minor prophets, that they bring a message from God. That the message of the minor seems to major on doom until we see it as part of a bigger picture. And the bigger picture is this, that our loving God, our loving God is calling his people back to holy and hopeful living. Holy and hopeful living aligned with his good purposes. Well, I've said this about each of the the minor prophets, but is it true about Jonah? Well, it is a message of doom. There is a message of doom for Nineveh. It's impending. God says, go and speak against them because of the way that they live. Is there a loving God calling his people? Absolutely, there's a loving God. It's a loving God for all people, a loving God for all nations, even and especially this totally sinful, pagan, corrupt Nineveh. And is he calling his people, his people of Israel? Actually, yes. Through this story, God is calling his children back to himself. Because woven through this story, the symbolism and the irony of Jonah's Jonah's disobedience, there is a message from God to the people of Israel. Here's another way to put it. Good news, bad news way to put it. The good news is God loves all people of all nations. The bad news is Jonah does not like that. He resents that. And he's just like stubborn Israel who wanted to keep God's love only for themselves. They were the chosen people, but they missed the part of the story that they were not only blessed as chosen people, but they were blessed to be a blessing. And for centuries, Israel just clung to the blessed status, wanting to keep God's love for themselves instead of being a blessing to the nations. And that's what we see woven through the story of Jonah. For my outline today, I borrowed it from a commentator, Lloyd Ogilvie, a great preacher of the 20th century. I borrowed it from his commentary not just because it's a clever outline, although it is a clever outline and I like clever outlines, but I borrowed it because it brings the message in Jonah closer to each of us in our struggles with the love of God. And so we have this. We have Jonah, first of all, running away from God. In chapter 2, we see him running back to God. Something about three days in a fish had something to do with that. In the third chapter, we see him running with God and finally following through and going to Nineveh. And then in chapter 4, as things kind of fall apart, we see him running ahead of God. So that's where we're headed. See, good outline. I couldn't have come up with it on my own. Maybe I could have, but it was great to borrow. So and it's not plagiarism because I told you, right? So we're good? We're good? Okay, good. <laughs> Seriously, though, running away from God. The story's pretty straightforward. God calls Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because it is so wicked and Jonah goes the other way. For him, it is a question of Nineveh or Tarshish. Nineveh or Tarshish. Nineveh is not only a huge city. In fact, some say that at that time in the world, it was perhaps the biggest city in the world. Some estimate as many as 600,000. 
But not only is it as a big city, but it represents everything that Israel hates and fears. That Nineveh is like a synonym for godless tyranny and idolatry, much the way Babylon later became in the language of scripture. But Nineveh was a, a symbol or a synonym for godless tyranny and idolatry. Other prophets had already told that Assyria's attack and dominance would come and crush the nation, the northern kingdom of Israel. It represents to Jonah and to us the hardest people to love. To Jonah and to us, it's the hardest people to love. And for the Israelites, Nineveh represents the Gentiles, the godless Gentiles, those they deem not worthy of the favor of God that they cling so tightly to. Jonah's refusal to go represents Israel's jealous guarding of God's love for them and their unwillingness to share God's love with others. Now, Nineveh is about 550 miles away from the coast of Israel, from Joppa. And Tarshish is in the opposite direction, likely in the area of Gibraltar in Spain, which is over 2,500 miles away. So it's like Jonah, God says Nineveh, and Jonah goes to, goes to his travel agent, because they didn't have the internet then, and said, um, what's the farthest place I can get on a boat out of Joppa? And they go, well, we can book you through to Tarshish. It'll take you almost a year. And Jonah says, let's do it. Tarshish represents escape and Nineveh represents obedience. So Jonah runs away, but he cannot run from God who sends the storm and the wind. This is great. The word for send here actually means hurls the storm. God hurls a storm at this boat in the middle of the Mediterranean. And Jonah goes into the sea. It's interesting in this story, as you read a little more slowly, that the pagan sailors actually urge Jonah to call upon his God to save them all. In fact, Jonah had a great evangelistic opportunity right here on the boat, but he doesn't seem to take it. They throw him overboard, and it shows them as the chapter 1 goes on, they actually end up worshiping the God of Israel after they get rid of God's prophet. (laughs) They seem to be running with God or towards God, even as Jonah is running away. Jonah goes into the sea, into the fish, and at the the end of chapter 1. But in chapter 2, we find him running back to God. Now, this is where we can spend a lot of time, with Jonah in the fish for three days. And again, here's where people get stuck. Is this really? Is this possible? So there's all, you can read all kinds of stuff on the size of fish and how big their bellies are. You can read about how a, a sperm whale might have found its way into the Mediterranean, and actually it is a large enough cat- cavity that a man could live there, but what about air? Well, maybe there was a, maybe he swallowed a big air pot. We could go on for days, and maybe that's what you're hoping for this morning, but I'm not going to give you the answers. Let's just say it was a miracle, Okay. And let's say that there's really something more important here. The bigger picture is that God saved Jonah. <laughs> he delivered him. He was into the sea. He was sinking to the bottom of the sea. And God delivered him and saved him. God could have said, that was a prophet was a waste of time. <laughs> but God delivered him. There's God's deliverance here of Jonah. There's God's deliverance eventually of Nineveh. And with all of this, this promise for Israel and for the, jo- the Gentiles... For Jonah, he was literally delivered of his life. He survived, and he knew now that he could not escape God. He did learn some things here, and in his gratitude, he is running back to God. And we hear it in his prayer in chapter 2. The prayer comes to us in poetry form, as we do see in so many of these prophets and in parts of the Old Testament. 
And in this poetic form, it reviews what has happened. It proclaims God's deliverance. It acknowledges answered prayer. It's not quite a prayer of repentance, but it comes very close. And in it, Jonah does acknowledge the low place to which he had sunk, real and figuratively. There is his realization of sin and disobedience, and it shows through here. In verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2, we have the few prophetic words of proclamation that he gives. The few words from this reluctant prophet where he says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. And I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Sometimes one of the most quoted verses from Jonah, other than silly stories about a fish. Salvation comes from the Lord. He's back. Jonah's back. He ran back to God. He gets it now. He has received God's mercy. He's been forgiven. He's been delivered. He has received this mercy that he initially refused to offer to the Ninevites. And now he's ready. The God of mercy, the God of compassion, the God of forgiveness has reached out to him. And he's ready now to run with God. But first, 2.10 is a favorite memory verse of many junior high boys. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. So, (laughs) But now Jonah in chapter 3 is running with God. The very first verse of chapter 3 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And so he sent Jonah a second time. I think this is a good good time to ask, has Jonah really changed? Is Is he really motivated to do this out of a totally transformed heart? Deep in the sea, deep in the heart of that whale, that fish, whatever... Was he really changed? Has he actually seen the Ninevites in a new light now? Has he all of a sudden seen them as, as, as objects of God's love? Or was he just so freaked out about getting caught and nearly drowning that he's simply obeying out of a simple act of gratitude or kind of one of those, if you rescue me, I will kind of things, you know? Oh God, if you get me out of this, I will give you my life. I will serve you. Or if you get me out of, I remember um, our last church years ago, there was a woman in our church and she brought a friend with her to church. And this friend was a little skeptical about Christian faith, but she came for several Sundays. And I finally found out that she had made a bargain with this friend of hers. And I can't remember what the deal was, but if, if such and such happens, I will worship for a month of Sundays. So she was with us for 31 Sundays. You know, we make those little bargains to God. And, and, and is that kind of what Joe, like, all right, I'll go to Nineveh, I'll say that thing. Is he really changed? Well, we'll see. He does follow through. He brings the prophetic warning to Nineveh. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown, he says in, in the third chapter. And that leads to the repenting of those people and the relenting of God. Miraculously, the Ninevites believe God. It is, this, is, this is the biggest miracle. It's a huge city. Scripture says 120,000. Some versions indicate that it's 120,000 children, and therefore it could have been as many as 600,000 people or more. But either way, one little vomit-covered Jonah walks into town and says, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. We don't know how it all happened, but Jonah speaks the word and it gets the attention of the king of Nineveh. And he calls all of his people and animals to fast and to wear sackcloth, like scratchy burlap, which was a symbol of repentance. They truly were repenting. All the people, all the livestock, it seems to indicate a a total response of the Ninevites to this call from God. And it wasn't a, I love you. It was like, I'm going to destroy you unless... 
and they turned from their evil ways. The king in chapter 3, verses 7 and 9 says, Let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. God may yet relent, and he does. The scriptures tell us God relents. God did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And so we see here the love of God. We see God's mercy for the Gentile, for the pagan who repents and turns to him. A a forgiven Jonah has learned his lesson, calls an evil people to turn to the living God, and they do. It seems like a good place to stop, doesn't it? It seems like three chapters and we've got the story down. It's a great story. God wins. Love wins. There's hope. There's forgiveness. The Israelite readers get it. God's love isn't just for us. Look what he did for Nineveh. Hallelujah. But the existence of chapter 4 tells us, no, they don't get it. And so the story doesn't end there. In chapter 4, we have Jonah running ahead of God. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. (laughs) And he became angry. And in a way, he says, I knew you were going to do this, Lord. You're so loving and gracious and kind. This is why I never wanted to do this in the first place, because I knew this would happen. (laughs) That's really what he's saying. And we have here, And in all too familiar interactions with each other and with God, we have anger and control teeming up in the heart of this poor little man. Jonah runs way out ahead of God by questioning God's forgiving mercy for the Ninevites. He is unable to let go of his firmly held concept of how God should act and his prejudiced presupposition that Yahweh was the exclusive God of the children of Israel. Jonah shows no openness to changing. He wants God to change, essentially, doesn't he? And as his anger deepens through this story, he goes to the saddest place of ultimate control. He wants his own life to end. If I can't have it the way I want it, I don't even want to be alive. That's pretty low. God shows mercy to him even at this low point. He found a place to pout. And God allows a plant to quickly grow up and shade him. This is the only place in the whole story where Jonah is reported to be happy because he is comfortable. Isn't that great? I am so blessed because I'm comfortable. (laughs) And God drives home the message again. God's kind of playing a little bit of a game with him, I think. And he makes the plant die the next day. And his anger comes back. His death wish comes back. And Jonah again is at that sad place of anger and wanting to see his control out ahead and telling God how he ought to act. Jonah essentially in this story is missing God's love. He's missing God's love for the Ninevites. He's missing God's love for himself. God even says and is recorded here by whoever wrote this down. God says in the final verses of this little book, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand? 
meaning there are people who are confused and just do not know. Should I not have concern for this great city? And that's where it ends. And Jonah doesn't even answer. Jonah's missing the love of God for himself. He's missing the love of God for those he deems too far for the reach of God. And so I find myself asking myself the question, where am I missing the love of God? Where am I clinging to the familiar, the safe, and the comfortable? In my my own case, I know it's easy for me to speak the words and the ideas about what ought to happen and what ought to call people to action, and yet I'm timid about the action. I love to speak of us reaching the least, the last, and the lost, but inside I'm going, especially the ones that are easy, fit my schedule, and don't upset the flow of my life too much. I never say that, but I see my inaction sometimes, my lack of follow-through as part of that. Where am I missing the love of God? Or another question to ask is, what is your Nineveh? What is my Nineveh? Deep down, we know what God wants us to do. We know where he wants us to go. Well, while not as brash as we paint the picture of Israel, we do it too. I do it. There are the hard to love. There are the easy to write off. The scoff at. The not like me's. There are people around us who live a lifestyle that we may actually be repulsed by because we are such good Christians. And the Nineveh we go to might be to walk right into their world. It might be a lifestyle, it might be a theological view that we think is so heretical that we decide that they don't believe in God because of what, how they act or what they say. We find it hard to extend love. Or a political view that we decide is unbiblical and we draw lines and we assume And we're saying, not going to Nineveh. And what is our Tarshish? Comfort? Safety? Sometimes we come up with really good spiritualized excuses. (laughs) Well, I just, I don't really have time. God's called me to use my time differently. God's called me too is a good, yeah. Or that's not really my gift to talk to people like that. Or whatever. But harsh use sometimes is to go far away. Sometimes it's to huddle closely with those who are like-minded and of the same spirit. I think we need to ask these hard questions of ourselves sometimes. And it's not a cute fish story anymore, is it? <laughs> As we struggle with this. The message was to Israel, and I think the message comes to us who are believers as well, that we too have been blessed to be the blessing. And it might be hard to do, but we can celebrate this grand, expansive love of God that no one is beyond his reach. So the table today is going to be a place where we wrestle with that a little bit and then we come to peace with it a little bit too. Today I'm calling it a table of conviction and grace. It's always a table of grace. Receive grace from Christ at the table. We ourselves come, we repent, and we confess as we come to the table But today, I want it to be a little place to allow, if you're willing, a little bit of conviction about whatever your Nineveh or Tarshish might be. I don't want you to feel bad. See, I want everybody to feel good. But maybe we need to feel bad for a little bit, right? To let the Spirit stir. And see, we might actually be missing the love of God for us 
and those he's called us to. The table is a place of receiving grace. The place, table is a place of hope. But it's also a place of conviction, confession, and repentance. The table also symbolizes this love of God for all. I love this table. I love the shape of this table. I wish we could get it refinished. It's a little beat up. But other than that, it goes out. Do you see that? It just kind of wedges out. It fits the size of this shape of this room, but I love the way it does that. And let it today represent for us the love of God for all the people, even the people in Nineveh that we would rather not go to. You can come join me as we get ready then to um, receive from the table of conviction and grace. In case you're wondering why I wear green, this is the long season after Pentecost that we call a season of growth, and so the green speaks of growth. Have we ever done this before? Together? I don't think so. Can I have the handhold? Or you need the handheld, don't you? Thanks. It was a quick decision, so. (laughs) Friends, this is a joyful feast the people of God. Many will journey from east and from west and from north and south and sit at table in the kingdom of God. This is the Lord's table and our Savior invites those who trust him to share this feast as he has prepared it. Jesus is here inviting us to know him. Jesus is here inviting us to know him together in our community. According to Luke, when our risen Jesus was at table with his disciples, he took bread, he blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. As we come to the Lord's table today, we come with gratitude for the deep love of God for us, and gratitude for the deep love of God for all people. We come with conviction that we have kept that love to ourselves, and we have even, on occasion, run from God. We come recognizing grace in Jesus, ready to receive. The table is a place then of confession and commitment. Let us take then a moment of silent prayer of confession and preparation for the table. Lord God, how we thank you that you are not shocked or surprised by the ways that we fail you. (laughs) Whether it is Jonah's disobedience many years ago or ours last night or yesterday or this morning, how we thank you, God, that your love for us is unbounding, your call to us is never-ending. We give you thanks and praise that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just, not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us. Amen. Sisters and brothers, this is food for the journey to which God has called us. Let our lives be nourished as the Lord himself by the Lord himself as we celebrate together at this table. Hear then the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as they're delivered by the Apostle Paul. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread. When he had blessed it, he broke it. 
And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. God, we gather now to consecrate these simple elements, elements you gave, elements you instituted. And through this ritual, this tradition, this moment, God, we declare that this bread and this juice, as we partake of them, Show our loyalty to you and our love for you. We consecrate them now to you and pray that our hearts would be truer and our lives would be stronger as we live for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.